The e-commerce fuel podcast is sponsored by Shopify, the car I use and love because it eliminates frustrating technical and server problems. Like a magenta logging issue I had before we switched over that brought our store to a crawl and required the better part of a day to troubleshoot. What's the only thing better than eliminating tech headaches? Making more money. And Shopify can help there too. We experienced a whopping 41% increase in conversion after moving our store to Shopify from Magento. So quit fighting with servers and make more money. You can learn how at shopify.com. Welcome to the e-commerce fuel podcast, your headquarters for building a six figure plus e-commerce business. I'm your host, e-commerce entrepreneur and Jeff Bezos wannabe, Andrew Derry. Hey guys, it's Andrew here and welcome to the e-commerce fuel podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Today on the show, I've got Rand Fishkin from Moz.com. And Rand, of course, is a well-known SEO, the co-founder of Moz.com, a site that uh, offers a suite of SEO tools, a number of well-read SEO blogs, uh, pretty well-known in the space. And we're talking about a couple of things, of course, most notably talking about uh, Mobilegeddon or the lack of. And a little interesting here, I recorded this the day after Mobilegeddon came out on uh, April 22nd and going to be coming out, this will be coming out a little bit later as you of course know. So, but we do get uh, Rand's thoughts at least on if not the long-term effects, at least in a minimum, what he saw the first couple of days and what his thoughts are for, for how, if at all, it's going to unfold in the future. We talk about uh, underrated SEO techniques, some of his favorite, talk about the biggest mistakes that e-commerce companies make in terms of SEO, and also get into some things about how tough it is to grow a company <laughs> and some of the struggles he's had that uh, he's talked about. So a lot in there. I'm going to go ahead and dive right into today's discussion. So we'll go ahead and get into it. Rand, thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure, Andrew. Thank you for having me. So the, I think the only thing I could lead with today, the day after uh, Mobilegeddon is supposedly rolling out, <laughs> I have to ask you about that. So supposedly, you know, that rolled out yesterday, and I know it's, you know, what, 24 hours into this. But uh, what, if anything, are you seeing in terms of that update from Google? It almost looks like they were messing with us. Like, I don't want to say they lied. They probably didn't lie. They probably did roll out something but it had a very tiny, nearly imperceptible impact. And in fact, if they hadn't announced it, it's probable that no one would have noticed. That's how tiny it was. Do you think that it's something that's going to come down the pipe and get updated in a couple of days or a couple of weeks? Or do you think it's they just were trying to scare everyone to actually being mobile compliant and this is the end game? Um, a little from column A and a little from column B. I think almost certainly this was primarily a PR move. You know, 70% plus of, of search results that we saw in the top 10 across many thousands, tens of thousands of mobile rankings were already mo marked as mobile friendly by Google, you know, three, four days before the update. So it, even if they had had a massive, huge change, big shakeup, it could only potentially have affected 30% of results, right? That's the maximum it could have done. Now, I think in Google's defense, potentially maybe... That 70% number was a result of the fact that many, many publishers and brands and websites went and made sure that they were mobile friendly before, you know, the last few weeks. But I think there's also some overplaying, right? When Google does make very big updates, things that really shake up the search results, they don't announce them. They have never pre-announced a very big, massive shift, right? When you talk about a panda or penguin or hummingbird or the guest blogging update 
or uh, the shutdown of large link networks, all those kinds of things basically have been very, very quiet until it actually rolled out. Sometimes they'll say, hey, we're thinking about doing this or hey, this might be coming. Watch out. But they never pre-announced the date. Uh, the only other time I can think of, I can remember when they rolled out something like this was, uh, do you remember when they made secure sites a ranking factor a few years ago? I do, yeah. Yeah, so they said HTTPS will be a new factor in our algorithm and it's potentially very important for the security and trust of your visitors, those kinds of things. And then when they rolled out the change, it was, again, like this one, almost imperceptibly small. Yeah, it was funny. The the secure thing was something a lot of people in our community got upset about in terms of it came right on the heels, if my timelines collect, of, uh, of them saying, hey, oh, authorship, yeah, we decided we're not going to mm-hmm, do that. Mm-hmm. And the majority of people in our community said, you know what? especially those who invested in authorship said, forget it. I'm not going to spend all this time with HTTPS and trying to be compliant only to have you really not give that much credit. So that kind of dovetails into another question I have is, you know, there's all these different changes to Google. I think the Google five years ago and the Google today are so different in terms of we don't have keywords and analytics. You know, the, the, the SERPs are so much more crowded out by ads. A lot of different things we could talk about, but I think it boils down to, Rand, do you think, is Google still living up to their motto, don't be evil? Sometimes yes, but I would say that Google has been a normal amount of evil for a large technology company since about 2008 or nine. And I think that what they did a fantastic job with was sort of their first 10 years of operation, right, from 97 to 2007. I think they did a fantastic job, phenomenal job of branding themselves as a company that was not evil, that did a lot of good things. And to their credit, I think they've done a bunch of wonderful, amazing, positive things too, but so have many other technology companies, right? I think um, Microsoft certainly has a legacy of connecting people around the world and making information available and, you know, powering the computer revolution. So they definitely did some evil things too, right? Along the lines of abusing their monopoly, price gouging certain enterprises, that kind of stuff. But yeah, I'd put Google in just about the same category at this point. And I think it's unrealistic for us to expect much different. I don't know why this image comes to mind, but I have kind of an image of, of you uh, and other SEOs and Matt Cuts and the Google teams kind of as the spy versus spy, you know, one against each other. I actually think, I feel like, I mean, maybe I'm giving him too much credit, but I actually think that one of the reasons that Matt has been taking a leave the last couple of years and uh, some of the frustrations he's expressed over the years have actually been because he also felt that Google was doing some evil that he was opposed to, right? And that he didn't expect from this company. And that happens when you go from, he joined Google when they were less than 1,000 people and now they're 20,000 plus. Let's assume maybe in the five, 10 years down the road, you know, today Google's kind of like the homepage of the internet still. But assuming that isn't the case in the future, what becomes that homepage? Maybe someone who does search a lot better than Google, or maybe traditional search isn't as crucial as it is today? Is it, is it Amazon? Is it Facebook? Is it DuckDuckGo? If one person had to knock them off, who would that be? I would actually suspect that given how other forms of media have evolved over time, what we're going to see is much more splitting and fragmenting. You can see that in the technology world as well, I think with search being the outlier, right? So Facebook completely dominated social media to you know an unheard of extent five years ago. But today, uh, while there is, while Facebook is still the dominant property, I think you're seeing a lot of splitting right into everything from Instagram and Pinterest and Twitter and LinkedIn to Snapchat and what have you, Periscope or Meerkat or all of these other forms of 
social networking and social connections and messaging, WhatsApp certainly, right? So I would suspect that Google's kind of an outlier in this area, and it's possible that over time we'll see uh, more of a split, or perhaps they'll continue to dominate search, but search won't be the only or the, the dominant activity on the web. And I think we're already seeing that with the move to social with some advanced economies, especially the wealthy segments of advanced economies moving to a little bit more of an app-centric world, or at least an app-supported world, right, and, and very heavy use of mobile apps. Although, I think, what was the stat? Something like 60% of smartphone owners, not even you know, feature phone owners, but smartphone owners in the U.S., which, of course, the U.S. is a very wealthy country, download zero apps per month. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, but I think in the 40%, there's more significant app use. So do you think, and maybe you'll have to kind of dig in a little bit, just getting a clarification on this, but do you think search is going to be the preeminent way people find things online in five to 10 years? Or do you think it, it could be replaced by social references? It could be replaced just by purely product search? Do you think search, even though it's getting a little bit more crowded, it's still going to be the primary way people interact with content online? So I would split out the two questions that you asked, right? Because one was, will search be the primary way that people interact with content online? And I think, I believe the answer to that is already trending to no. And then you asked, will search be the primary way that people find things and get information that they need? And I think the answer will continue to be yes for a long time. So two different answers to what I think should be two different questions. For most anyone who knows anything about SEO, you know, there's kind of the pillar techniques that are obvious, they're tried and true, you know, of course, getting links from authoritative domains, writing good content, et cetera, et cetera. But in your opinion, what are maybe two of the three most underrated SEO techniques for ranking pages in terms of either techniques that are just underestimated in general or maybe underestimated relative to how much they're talked about? Sure. I think one that is becoming very clear to the SEO world, but unfortunately is very, very challenging for most SEOs to influence is branding. So building a familiar, positive brand that many people know and like and trust is a big marketing challenge. It's usually something where SEOs are neither consulted nor involved in particularly, but in my opinion, it's having a huge impact in search results. And we're seeing Google bias more and more the ranking signals that are well correlated uh, with having a great brand. So I'm not saying Google looks for, oh, you are a brand, you're a target, I'm going to rank you high. But they have all of these things around, you know, user, user and usage data and visit path analysis and, and the kinds of links that you are, not just links in general, but how you are in them, where you are in them. Distribution of your uh, link equity uh, certainly looks at the types of content that you're putting out and how that's serving visitor interests, you know, search query data based on queries and clicks, as well as bounce rates and pogo sticking, right? So all those, all those many things, and probably many things we don't know about, are very well correlated with the signals, the positive signals that brands tend to earn. And unfortunately, you know, if you're not a brand, it's really hard to earn those. Uh, your branding number one. Uh, is there a second one that comes to mind for underrated technique? Sure. Um, I'm actually going to go out of the pure SEO world. And I'm going to say this does have an SEO impact. But I think that many, many sites and many marketers focus on traffic acquisition, uh, sometimes at the cost of funnel optimization. So they think about how do I get more traffic, not how do I convert more of the visitors that I'm already earning. And the interesting part about that is with Google's focus, increasing focus on you know, like I said, query and click data, user and usage data, visit path data, all these kinds of, of usage forms, 
of ranking signals, that can have a huge impact, right? If you suddenly go from converting one out of 100 people who comes to your site to three, well, not only does your revenue triple, but it's very likely that Google will see you as a much more, you know, sort of positive result for them to put in their queries. Is that obviously a lot of stuff Google can just see based on uh, scripts and things, but some of the really in-depth you know, e-commerce analytics with Google Analytics. Do you think they look at those in terms of ranking properties if you've no, got no. that enabled? No. And in fact, I don't think they look at any of the stuff where it's like, oh, you know, you have an AdSense block on your site or, you know, a retargeting unit from Google on your site. I don't think they're using those in their ranking algorithm. I think it's fairly simplistic. They use data from Chrome. They use data from Android. And they use data from the search results themselves. So they can see, here's what people clicked on. Here's what they didn't click on. Here's queries that clearly satisfied people and they didn't come back anymore and perform other queries suggesting that, you know, they weren't satisfied. And here's queries where they weren't satisfied and they did come back to the results and clicked on other things. And I think those kinds of signals are, you know, where they're getting the data to help sites that improve conversion rate and branding, right? And hurt sites that don't. I'm sure you see all sorts of uh, atrocious SEO mistakes across the board, but uh, <laughs> in terms of our audience, e-commerce store owners, in that particular niche, what's the biggest SEO mistake you see e-commerce companies making? I think my least favorite phrase, this is true kind of across SEO, but particularly pernicious problem in e-commerce is good, unique content. I can't tell you, Andrew, how many people come to me, e-commerce site owners, right? And they're like, we have good, unique content, <laughs> to which I want to say, so what? That doesn't mean anything. No one cares. Google doesn't care that you have good, unique content. I thought if we got good, unique content and we got links, we would get our rankings up. No, right? In my opinion, if you want to rank well today because of two things, one, the complexity of the ranking algorithm and how dramatically that's improved, well, three things. Two, the user expectations, right? What people expect in terms of page load speed, in terms of user experience and friendliness, in terms of dumbed down navigation that's so simple that anyone can use it and anyone can figure it out. And, you know, I think the UX world has just become so good at helping web users, even very unsavvy web users, figure out how to use things that now complex interfaces, poor design, poor UI results in people being very unhappy and leaving sites right away. And then uh, third, the fact that your competition is doing those things, right? So we have a much more competitive environment, much higher expectations from users, and much more complex search algorithms. And these three things combine to mean that good, unique content and getting some links and making your site crawlable is not even table stakes, in my opinion, right? Uh, now, if you, if you told me instead... We believe that the experience on our pages is not only unique, uh, but the value that's provided is unique, meaning you cannot get the value that our pages provide to searchers anywhere else on the web. And our content, our experience that we offer is 10 times better than anyone who's ranking in the top 10 today. That is a reasonable bar to set for yourself. Good, unique content is not going to help you. And it's funny when I ask you the pillar stone content, SEO techniques above, I think I, I put, I'm very guilty. I've got my notes here, create good content. I could <laughs> yeah, just uh, I, go back. You probably could cringe. I probably could hear you on the, uh, on the recording. And it's not, look, I'm not saying don't create good content. I'm just saying don't expect that by creating content that's as good as, you know, the guy who's ranking number one today, or as good as, you know, what you think a user 
would be satisfied with is going to be good enough, right? So rankings are very competitive today. Signals are growing. User expectations are much higher. The bar has been raised dramatically. And I think sometimes our mentality as marketers, content creators, hasn't quite caught up. Good's not enough. You've got to be phenomenal and your UX has to be outstanding to be able to do it. Yeah, certainly if you're trying to break into rankings that you don't already hold today, right? If you're trying to win over other folks, you have to leapfrog. You cannot simply be as good as or slightly better than. Rand, are you guys at Moz dedicating your resources to understanding um, Amazon's ranking algorithms in terms of tools to track those listings and figure out you know, what really goes into getting those products to number one? Because, I mean, traditionally it hasn't been part of SEO, but with so much of product search getting uh, cannibalized, not cannibalized, but shifting over to Amazon, it's pretty meaningful for maybe traditional SEOs that wouldn't have thought about it before. I agree that there are SEOs thinking about it, and there are a few products in that space. This is not something, however, that Moz has put energy and effort into, nor is it something we're likely to invest in over the next four to five years. Very long-term possible, but for now, no. I want to transition a little bit away from SEO. And you wrote a, a really personal and candid article recently titled A Long Ugly Year of Depression That's Finally Fading that kind of chronicles some of the struggles you've gone through over the last couple of years, especially related to the rollout of, of Moz Analytics, yep. which we'll link up to. And I want to ask you a couple of questions about that. But quickly before we do, for what it's worth, I think it's really admirable that you shared that. I think it's something, you know, those kind of struggles are things that most founders have and aren't brave enough to talk about. And I think it's incredibly helpful to read that from somebody in your position. And secondly, I'm just as a longtime Moz pro customer myself, I know you felt like you let down a lot of customers. I didn't even realize anything was wrong. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm sure it was, we all well, are our worst critics, but uh, to me, I read oh, that yeah. and uh, I was like, wow, it's, I had no idea this was going on. So, so you must be user number 14,117 because we did see one account that didn't have any problems. <laughs> I think that was me. Exactly. How did you know? Uh, I'm just kidding. But uh, yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate that. You know, look, like I, as I said in the post, it was, in my opinion, a very poor quality rollout and definitely us not putting our best foot forward. But that being said, you know, I think we've had 12,000 or more of our paying subscribers who've been members for 18 months or longer, right? So clearly they liked the new product enough, didn't mind the change, right? And stayed with it and have kept using it. So I might have overplayed and certainly in my mind, I know I overplayed the sky is falling kind of mentality. There's a lot that you really dive into in terms of lessons you learned and, and, and what happened. But uh Maybe to just bring it back to one issue, what was the biggest lesson you learned from that entire period or the number one thing you do differently from the rollout over the last two years? Um, I, from now on, I, I don't think I'll ever build software in a big bang development fashion again, especially if I already have existing users on a piece of software, right? So I think from now on, it's going to be very iterative development, meaning that you know, with Moz Analytics, for example, right, the idea was, hey, we have something that tracks rankings, we have something that crawls your site and shows you errors and warnings, let's add link data to that and social mention data to that, or, uh, you know, social tracking data and brand mention data and uh, content uh, performance data and, you know, have all these different sections. And at this point, if I were to go back in time, I would say, hey, guess what, we're going to upgrade the rankings thing this quarter, the next quarter, we're going to work on social, then the quarter after that, if we're happy with the social rollout, we're going to work on content. And then the quarter after that, right, and we're going to roll out each of these things iteratively. And I think the frustrating part for the marketing side of me and for the marketer in all of us, right, is that you know that that won't have as big a splash, right? It's not going to 
echo around the industry. You don't suddenly go, oh my God, overnight, this has become what everyone should use. And that's exactly what I was aiming for was the marketing results of that launch. And that's foolish in retrospect, right? So what actually happened is the marketing side of it totally worked. I think we had somewhere between 75 and 100,000 people sign up for Moz Analytics when we announced it. And they were all on the wait list. And then when we finally emailed them, I think there were less than 3,000 people who actually signed up and fewer than 500 of those who actually stuck with the product. So it feels good to have that nice marketing launch, but ultimately not a, not a great way to go. One of the things that really stood out to me in that article was how you mentioned that you struggled so deeply with decoupling your personal happiness from the success of Moz, of your business. And I don't think there's any serious entrepreneur, at least that I know of, that doesn't struggle with this. And it was something where, at least in the article, you said, you know, you kind of gave up on that and just said, I don't think it's possible for me. I'm just going to work harder at making the business better. So to circle around to that, is that something that you've made any progress? Or do you still feel the same about that? And do you think it's necessarily a bad thing? Or do you think, could it be maybe, you know, take a, a different approach from the, the typical wisdom and just say it's a great thing in the sense that it, it's what gives us entrepreneurs the fire we need to really make something work? Hmm. Interesting. I guess it, it sort of depends on your goal or perceived outcome and how you rank the importance of various things in one's life or in society as a whole, right? So if, if the goal is how do we get the most people giving the most of themselves to make the most money, then I think the answer is, yeah, it is a good thing for entrepreneurs to have this addiction, to feel these pressures, to feel like they cannot be happy without success. However, if uh, you're a little maybe a little less capitalist and a little more sort of philosophically humanist, then I think you would say it's a bad thing. And you would want entrepreneurs to work on being independently happy and then also deriving happiness, but being able to disconnect from their businesses if and when things don't go well. Rand, I uh, really respect what you've done in the SEO space. Love the, the brand and company you've built at Moz. And man, just really appreciate you coming on to talk about everything from SEO to uh, the personal happiness in terms of how it relates to, to business success. So thank you. My pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for having me. If you've got any questions after hearing our discussion, uh, Rand generously offered to, to do his best at answering those for you. You can get a hold of him, Rand at Moz.com, on Twitter at Rand Fish, that's R-A-N-D-F-I-S-H. You can also check out his blog at Moz.com forward slash Rand. And of course, for SEO tools and really email marketing, everything. A great set of pro tools at moz.com. That's going to do it for this week. But if you're interested in launching your own e-commerce store, download my free 55-page ebook on niche selection and getting started. And if you're a bit more experienced, look into the e-commerce fuel private forum. It's a vetted community for store owners with at least 4,000 in monthly sales or industry professionals with at least a year or more experience in the e-commerce space. You can learn more about both the ebook and the form at ecommercefuel.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again next Friday.